Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. You can also find me on Twitter at ERB underscore VFR, evidence-based radio underscore Valley Free Radio. And um, I will be especially working on retweeting stories about, you know, visual matters, for instance, that don't really work with radio. And so I do want to start out tonight with actually a uh, correction. And so I uh, mixed up Dyson spheres, um, which Freeman Dyson uh theorized, which are a, again, theoretical megastructure that would surround a star and um, would be something that a civilization would use in order to um, use that star as a source of energy. And one of the big things about that is generally that it's considered that it would be a sign of an alien civilization if we found one out there. Um, and so I confused that with geodesic domes, which were designed by Buckminster Fuller. <laughs> this is what happens when you add stories at the last minute and don't fact check them properly. Um, <laughs> so um, I definitely wanted to set the record straight there because I don't like to uh, give out bad information, if at all possible. Okay. So let us begin tonight's stories with preliminary results from the data that the InSight lander has been sending back from Mars. So we've talked a lot about the InSight, so it's good to start talking about just what it is that it is bringing back to us um, as far as data. And so, um, as you may or may not know, Mars would have once had a magnetic core, much like that of the Earth. However, uh, this magnetic core stopped functioning very early in Mars's history. Um, researchers estimate that it was around 4 billion years ago, which of course led it to have a very different history than that of the Earth. And that's a big reason why it's not lush and verdant the way that the Earth is um, if life ever did try and start there, because without that magnetic field's protection from the sun's deadly rays, um, basically the surface is constantly bombarded by um, cosmic rays and by um, radiation from the sun. And so it has that very harsh, very... Um, desert-like um, landscape. But despite this magnetic core having long since ceased to provide a magnetic field for the planet, early rocks would still retain some measure of magnetic alignment with the ancient magnetic field. Now, orbiters have detected this residual field in the past, but the InSight lander has actually allowed us to study a local field with surprising, with surprising results. Now, the field strength is actually an order of magnitude larger than had been predicted based on earlier readings from those orbiters. 
But because they are taking readings at around 93 miles above the surface, this simply suggests that there are local fields which are concentrated below that altitude. Now, the field around the lander is around 2 microtesla. To put that in perspective, Earth's field is usually at least 10 times that. And in fact, in some places, the Earth's uh, magnetic field has been weakening and is probably still 10 times that. Um, and so it's it's very faint at this point, obviously. So there's not a lot of protection. Um, and so the readings suggest that there are actually rocks in the area old enough to have formed when Mars's magnetic field was still active. Now, based on seismic readings, these rocks are deeper than 650 feet and may even be as far down as six miles below the surface. So unfortunately, we might not be able to uh, sample them during this trip. Um, but, you know, at least we can learn more about them through seismic um, imaging. And so the lander also found a series of daily variations in the magnetic field induced by interactions with the solar wind and with Mars's magnetotail, which is the, um, it's charged particles that stream away from the sun. Um, they're caught by the solar wind. A series of pulses occurring around midnight are suspected to be caused by the magnetotail, while another set in late afternoon are hypothesized to be due to variations in altitude as the field pushes back against solar wind. So it's pushing up and it's being pulled and pushed by the solar wind um, as it streams across the landscape. They also found a 26-day cycle associated with the rotation of the sun. They suspect there will also be a pattern based on Mars's year, which is, of course, not the same as our year. Now, all of this is really awesome and cool, but the real lead is the fact that the lander has found evidence of around 175 Mars quakes. And so this is the first seismic data that has been recorded from the planet. Now, it's hampered somewhat by winds that cause noise in the data as it pushes against both the lander itself and the surrounding rocks. But the NASA team knew this was going to be an issue. And so the lander was actually equipped with meteorological instruments that are able to help track that wind and they're then able to use that data in order to help filter out some of the noise in the seismic data, which is very cool. And so they found that over 20 of the earthquakes reached a moment magnitude of three or higher, though none above four. And so a moment magnitude is, of course, that the peak sort of magnitude that happens for at least... Um, some amount of time. And so they found that there were actually two different patterns of quakes based on the frequency patterns of the waves. High frequency wave events were low magnitude and contained within the crust. These are probably locally caused events and don't suggest a larger pattern for the planet. The low frequency events were different. 
These were recorded after having traveled through the interior and thus can help researchers to begin to image what lies below the surface of the planet. The team found that in general, they follow the same pattern as moonquakes. They seem to fade with distance while traveling through the mantle before reaching the local crust. The waves are actually dramatically slowed down by the upper crust, unlike that of Earth. And so it suggests at this point that the upper six or so miles of the crust is actually highly altered, with a lot of local fractures and unconsolidated material rather than solid layers of bedrock. So normally, if you dig far enough down on the earth, you'll get to what's called bedrock, which is sort of the, um, is sort of very dense, very um, solid rock that is kind of the top of the crust, so to speak. Um, But what they're suggesting here is that the top of Mars might be filled with more um, like large boulders and things like that that have been uh, moved around and have consolidated back into the top of the crust, but are not solid slabs of bedrock the way that we have here on Earth. And so, unfortunately, we do only have the one seismometer on the planet at the moment. Uh, So this makes triangulation impossible for those Mars quakes. Um, But there is some indication that some of the largest quakes are coming from the nearby Cerberus Fosse region, which which has been the site of geologically recent volcanic activity. And of course, when I say geologically recent, I don't mean within the last hundred or thousand years, probably within the last 10,000 years is a little more um, what I'm talking about. And so it suggests, though, that the area might still be somewhat seismically active. Now, there also might be movement based on orbital or thermal effects. Unfortunately, as we've talked about several times, the thermal data, which would have been available, isn't uh, as part of the lander. This part of the lander has really struggled to deploy properly. Um, and so despite this, though, we've gotten amazing, incredible new uh, information from the lander. And it is definitely not, um, even though it would be great to have that extra data, it is extra data. And so despite all of the challenges uh, between the help of the smart minds at NASA and, of course, other missions, including the MAVEN and Mars Reconnaissance Orbiters, which don't get a lot of love. Um, We talk a lot about uh, the rovers and now the lander, but there are actually two kind of workhorse orbiters that have been doing a lot of great work at um, while they um, circumnavigate Mars. And so the MAVEN and the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiters are both up there and are doing their own amazing science. And so we are getting a lot of important information that will give us more insight into exactly what is going on with our neighboring planet. And, you know, obviously we will need a lot of information if we plan to ever send people there. And thinking of sending new things to Mars, we now have the name of the Mars 2020 rover. 
this new rover will be called Perseverance, and it's actually basically ready to get on its way. Uh, It has a launch window scheduled for July 2020 from Cape Canaveral down in Florida. And so the name came from a contest, which was launched by NASA, um, I think, at least over a a year ago. And uh, the name is credited to seventh grader Alex Mather from the Lake Braddock Secondary School in Virginia. Uh, He said in his essay that humans will need perseverance as they continue to explore the solar system and beyond. And so, yeah, it's a pretty good name. I like it. Uh, The rover is scheduled to touch down on the red planet on February 18th, 2021. And so this new rover will include instruments to scan the ground beneath the rover itself, the ability to collect and store surface samples, advanced auto navigation software, more durable wheels, and maneuvering ability to keep it from tilting over. Um, And so, you know, sometimes there's some pretty rough terrain. And if you've got a uh, more maneuverable chassis on your rover, you're more likely to be able to keep everything upright and moving along. They've done a ton of testing with it. Um, They have, um, usually they create sort of fake um, Martian landscapes and they run the rovers through all sorts of different scenarios and climbing over giant boulders and all sorts of things. So it will definitely be uh, ready to be able to maneuver on the planet as long as it touches down properly and is able to deploy all of its bits. Um, But of course, as we know, they've done pretty good with rovers lately. Um, We've had, we had uh, up to four at one point. Um, I don't know if spirit was still working. Um, But you know, we've, we've had a lot of good luck with our rovers. And so, yeah, um, hopefully this is going to go well and we'll get even more awesome, fantastic information about Mars. So um, it will actually also be bringing along the Mars Helicopter Scout. So this is a new thing. It will be an aerial vehicle, which will send back images to the surface from the Uh, local atmosphere. So that's exciting. Um, The rover is set to land at Jezero Crater, which is the site of an ancient lake bed, and it will uh, be searching for signs of life, and it will perform analyses of the planet's geology, atmosphere, and other natural phenomena. So quite exciting. All right. So let's move on now to talk about something that I personally think is some pretty good news and I'd like to talk about, even though it's a little bit controversial, um, though I don't quite know why. Um, And so the FDA has finally banned the use of electric shock, quote unquote, adversive conditioning at the Judge Rotenberg Educational Center in Canton, Mass. This is the last facility to continue to support the use and to actually use such adversive conditioning on children and adults with profound mental uh, health disabilities and issues. 
Though claimed to be a quote-unquote last resort, the system, called a graduated electronic decelerator, which includes electrodes attached to the arms and legs connected to a device in the student's backpack, is absolutely a legacy of a darker past of psychiatry and psychology. As of the end of last year, 48 adult students were court-approved to wear the backpacks. This is actually a drop from past years, but that is in part because the state passed regulation in 2011 to prohibit new students from receiving the backpacks. And um, you will note that I said court um, approved. And so um, this has been a really hard fought um, battle between people who are just convinced that this works. In fact, there was a lawsuit recently and um, the judge ruled in favor of the device and said that it was perfectly reasonable, um, which I just find very unsettling. Through advancements in medical science, there are now more treatment options available to reduce or stop self-injurious or aggressive behavior, said Dr. William Maisel, the d- a director in the FDA's device center. Now, the device could deliver a two-second shock to the patient's skin via remote control. As I noted, several lawsuits have been brought against the school by families, and they say that their children were traumatized. Some parents actually, though, are still supporting the use of the device. And so I do want to note that. Um, The FDA stated that evidence indicates a number of significant psychological and physical risks are associated with the use of these devices, including worsening of underlying symptoms, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorders, pain, burns, and tissue damage. And so they suggest that patients should instead receive treatments that will help eliminate factors that trigger extreme behaviors and encourage patients to learn coping skills to deal with their situation. However, the JRC uh, has 180 days to stop using the advice, the device, and the administrators and some family members actually say they will fight the decision. We will fight any attempt to remove this treatment from their available care and treatment plan, the Judge Rotenberg Educational Center Parents Association told Channel 5 Investigates in a statement. A government agency offering no effective alternative treatments for our loved ones is moving to take away the only treatment that has successfully allowed them to stop maiming themselves, spend time with their families, and to learn and engage in the community instead of being in a locked room while physically, mechanically, or chemically restrained by drugs. It is a matter of life and death. However, as I've noted, many other parents and former students say that the devices were tantamount to torture. And so again, I am glad that they are being banned, and I hope that this prevails and that they will learn how to actually help these people without trying to physically torture them. Um, I mean, it's just, it's very upsetting. I mean, this is straight out of um, sort of horror movies about psychiatry back in the 50s and 60s. And I understand the parents' frustration because they have been convinced that this is the only way to help their loved ones. But I think that 
there has to be a better way than actually physically torturing them. Um, I can't imagine that there isn't. And, you know, I may be wrong, but I think that it's much more uh, likely that there are ways that these people can be helped in this day and age rather than to continue to shock them with electricity um, whenever they step out of line. Okay, that's that's enough about that. Uh, so speaking of uh, banned substances or things, uh, let's move on to a much more lighthearted story. Uh, researchers at um, Wageningen University or Wageningen University, um, not sure which, and research in the Netherlands, uh, used urine harvested from an Amsterdam musical festival to create a substance called struvite, which is used as a fertilizer. The researchers, led by Dr. Weiger Vamelink, are investigating if human waste could be used as fertilizer on future space expeditions as part of the group's work investigating Mars and moon soil. And so they wanted to see if the struvite, a solid form of urine made by combining it with magnesium, uh, which in fact actually is what is cause, which causes kidney stones. So combining urine with magnesium creates this struvite and the struvite actually hardens into kidney stones. And so the team filled 30 pots with artificial lunar and Mars soil, 15 of each, and 30 with terrestrial soil, each containing three bean seeds. Struvite was added to half of the pots. The pots were then watered daily and kept under greenhouse conditions. After two weeks, if more than one bean had sprouted, the smaller one was removed to leave just one plant in each pot. They monitored the length of the plants to gauge their health and growth rate. Soon enough, the length of the plants started to vary, showing that the crops planted in potting soil and lunar soil simulant with struvite experienced the strongest growth, said Wamalink. The Martian planet... The Martian plants with struvite showed a lag in their growth, which was surprising as their growth started out as more promising than the lunar plants. The first beans erupted around Christmas time, with those having struvite performing best. We were certainly thrilled with this result, which was faster than we expected, although it meant I had to work between Christmas and New Year's, he said in a statement. Soon enough, the length of the plants started to vary, showing that the crops planting planted in potting soil and lunar soil stimulant with struvite experienced the strongest growth. Now, both the plants from the pots with potting soil and those with faux lunar soil had multiple beans in that first harvest. The beans from faux Martian soil took an, an additional week to ripen. Over two pounds of beans were ultimately harvested from the plants with struvite, while only a few meager beans resulted from the pots without this fertilizer. But uh, coming back to uh, the topic of being banned, there was one significant downside due to the origin of that fertilizer. The researchers are not allowed to eat the beans because currently using struvite made from such events as a fertilizer is not legal in the country. Uh, he notes that it's down to the stuff that people take at these festivals that ends up in the urine, even though we know now that 
that is almost 100% pure and it is safe to use. We are waiting for legislation. I would eat it though, but I'm not allowed. And as a scientist, I should wait for the official approval, explained Dr. Um, Wamalink. And so, yeah, <laughs> um, I think that's pretty hilarious. But it would also actually be a real boon because if you could use this, um, you know, what is basically an environmental uh problem. Um, I know that the last um, time the, I'm trying to remember what it's called. Oh dear. Um, it's not going to come to me, but there's a giant musical festival in England each year. And last year they were um, threatening to not have it again because the amount of um, damage to the local area was just, it was staggering. I mean, because people are, you know, not using restrooms available. They are just availing themselves of the local countryside. And so waste uh, was getting into local rivers and streams and causing um, anoxia. And it was just terrible. Um, and so, um, yeah, they were actually considering saying, we, you can't have this festival anymore. But if it could actually be used as something really, uh, could actually be turned into something useful, that might be helpful. So um, we can hope that in the future, there will be some way to actually turn this into something useful and not just a environmental nightmare. <laughs> okay, um, so let's move on now and shift to one of our favorite topics, birds. Uh, and of course, one of those favorite birds around here, parrots. And so uh, let's talk about a new study that suggests that New Zealand's alpine parrot, the adorable Kia, can understand probabilities. In a new paper published in Nature Communications, the researchers report on six birds who were given a decision to make in a series of uncertain scenarios. The birds generally opted for the decision where they were most likely to be able to gain a reward. Kia are a species of parrot that exists only in the South Island of New Zealand. They are also the only parrot in the world to live in the Alpine Mountains, a cold and harsh environment where food resources can be scarce. Amalia Bastos, the study's first author from the University of Auckland, noted, This food scarcity is probably the reason why they are highly inquisitive. It is essential to their survival that they can readily assess potential new sources of food. And so the first experiment presented Kia with jars containing a mix of orange and black tokens. Choosing a black token would give them a reward, while the orange token would yield nothing. The researchers then placed a hand into a jar with 100 black tokens and 20 orange tokens, and the other hand in a jar with the reverse ratio. After 20 trials, three of the six birds immediately showed a preference for the hand that had been in the jar with more black tokens. In the second scenario, the researchers presented one jar with 20 black tokens and 100 orange tokens, and another with 20 black tokens and four orange tokens. 
Forkia immediately preferred the hand with the better odds in the first 20 trials. And finally, in a test with 63 orange tokens and 57 black tokens in one jar, and 63 tokens and 3 black tokens, all six Kia preferred the one with better odds in the first trial. So the researchers decided to make it even more challenging. They presented the birds with two jars containing equal numbers of both tokens. However, half of each jar was covered, and one jar showed many more black tokens in the part still visible to the birds. Five of the six birds preferred this jar to the other within the first 20 trials, showing that they could still contemplate the probability even with a barrier. And finally, they presented the birds with two humans, a biased and an unbiased sampler. The biased sampler chose from a jar with mostly orange tokens, but always chose a black token. The unbiased chooser sampled from a jar with mostly black tokens, but always chose black tokens. Three of the six birds chose the biased human offering more frequently than chance. The researchers note that if the Kia understood that the biased sampler was indeed biased to choose a rewarding token, while the unbiased sampler had only been choosing rewarding tokens at the same frequency as the biased sampler due to the population they were sampling from, Kia should choose the biased sampler at test. This was because while the unbiased sampler would now be likely to choose a rewarding token half the time, the biased sampler should continue to choose the rewarding token in every trial. Now, this is of course a small study and can't be seen as conclusive evidence that the birds really truly understand probability, but it's very intriguing and it continues to show us that birds can definitely perform complex cognitive tests that once were thought to be the uh, exclusive purview of primates. Oh, and the birds were named Blofeld, Bruce, Loki, Neo, Plankton, and finally Taz, who managed to pass all of the tests. So the next time someone calls you a bird brain, say thank you. All right. It is time for some uh, PSAs and show promos. Then we'll come back and talk about another uh, favorite around here. We will talk about mantis shrimp. So hang on for just a second. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Hi, I'm Mark Sherry. I'm Ed Malachowski. And I'm Ace Housethor, and we're some of the hosts for the New Music Alliance Radio Hour, which goes up every Thursday from 6 to 7 p.m. We're going to focus on presenting some of the best original music to come from the Western New England area, both past and present. In addition to myself and Ace and Mark, we have Mark Beauvais, David Sokol, and Betsy Cordes for the ride. And as always, keep, keep on rocking. Rockin'. 
I'm so glad we left that stupid party. No joke. Hey, baby, are you an overdue library book? Because you got fine written all over you. Oh, barf. <laughs> what about that girl with the hoop earrings? Ridiculous. When she was dancing... Megan, I'm... look out. Look out! <gasps> Oh my god, Becky. Becky, are you okay? My arm. I think it's broken. Can you bend it? It's already bent in the wrong direction. I can't believe this. I'm so sorry. I only had a few drinks. I was just buzzed. Really? Just buzzed? Yeah, I swear. Well, in that case, my arm is fine. Ah, that's better. You're really okay? You're serious, Becky? No genius. I'm not serious. Buzzed driving. Maybe we should stop acting like it's no big deal. Buzzed driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly. Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP. Bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yusef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Aquí habla Marta Martinez, acupunturista de Stay in Touch. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio. W-X-O-J-L-P. Northampton. Okay, we are back, and as promised, we are going to start talking about mantis shrimp, which is, uh, I hope that you know what mantis shrimp are. Uh, there are over 450 known species of these uh, internet star creatures, but most fall into one of two camps, spearers or smashers. Smearer, spearers, excuse me, <laughs> stab prey with spear-like appendages, while smashers use raptorial appendages that are rounded hammer-like claws. And as we've learned in recent years, they move so fast underwater that they create cavitation bubbles in that water, which cause a shockwave that often serves as a follow-up strike, which can... Uh, stun and sometimes even kill their prey. Some of those cavitation bubbles are so powerful that they produce sonoluminescence, wherein the bubble produces a brief flash of light when they collapse. We've also found that they are able to produce such powerful jabs because of a sort of bow and arrow arrangement that relies on a spring action rather than hefty musculature. Because, of course, uh, as an arthropod, they don't have a lot of uh, ability to have heavy musculature because they're, um, you know, encased in uh, a chitinous um, exoskeleton. So they don't really have a lot of uh, ability to have any kind of real musculature. 
And so Dr. Kate Feller, who is now at the University of Minnesota, um, but at the time was conducting research on mantis shrimps uh, in a lab at the University of Cambridge in the UK, uh, decided that uh, she was doing this and uh the arthropods uh, do not enjoy being handled, uh, and especially not out of the water, and would often lash out. So Feller designed a way to hold the animals so that their gills were still underwater, but their striking appendages could be exposed to air. A colleague and co-author, Greg Sutton, visited her lab one day and actually mentioned in passing that it might be interesting to compare the punching-slash-stabbing power of their appendages in the different mediums. Feller actually agreed that this would be worthy of study, so they gathered six female and one male mantis shrimp. And so in order to control for body posture variation, each mantis shrimp was partially restrained on a gimbaled platform in an aquarium partly filled with seawater. Once mounted, they were placed in the aquarium either fully or partially. The researchers then used fiberglass sticks to poke the mantis shrimps in the posterior uh, to effect a defensive strike. Now, of course, sometimes things didn't go quite to plan, <laughs> with, as mentioned, the mantis shrimp being quite unhappy with their human handlers. I have a pretty epic photo of my bleeding hand over a white sink when one stabbed me during this process, said Feller. <laughs> when all was said and done, the team was able to analyze 31 strikes in the air and 36 in the water. They had hypothesized that the strikes would be just as powerful, if not more so in air, since it's a less dense medium. But that what they actually measured was the exact opposite. The strikes were half as fast and were more akin to that of a grasshopper's leg than that than the 10 times more powerful strike underwater. They believe the result may have to do with the need for a shock absorbing medium. Insects and arthropods that leap have built-in structures to absorb excess kinetic energy. A previous study of mantis shrimp found that they too have structures for absorbing the kinetic energy, with an inner layer of chitin, calcium phosphate, and calcium carbonate found in the claws, in the interior of the claws. The same group also found that the outer layer of the claws contained chitin fibers surrounded by calcium phosphate. This is actually the calcium that's found in human bones. And those, that calcium phosphate was actually arranged in a precise herringbone pattern around those chitinous fibers. And of course, the prey also absorbs some of the energy. But with so much at play, the medium may well be important. The surrounding medium and strike target work together as external shock absorbers for mantis shrimp strikes, the authors wrote. And so it's probable that the animals sensing that they are not in the proper medium uh, with such a large amount of drag, thus don't need to engage full power. In air, not only are the forces of drag from water absent, but the entire sensory experience is messed up, said Feller. So maybe in the absence of a perceived target, the animals don't give it the full pow, so they don't blow out their joints. So that is very cool. 
Um, and of course, they just continue to be ridiculously interesting and um, are just part of the whole uh, craziness that is things from the uh, ocean. There are all sorts of insanely weird and wonderful animals in the ocean, and there's plenty of them that we still haven't even met yet. And um, But unfortunately, we're doing a lot of damage to the ocean before we even get to meet some of them. Um, so it's, it's problematic, <laughs> to say the least. And so um, I think that we when we talk about these kind of awesome creatures from the sea, we should also sort of remember that it's important that we support uh, measures that continue to clean up the ocean or not further pollute the ocean um, and things like that, because it is definitely a uh, problem. And in fact, um, I didn't write about the whole story, but a uh, team of researchers just found a small uh, aquatic animal and they uh, gave part of its Latin name as uh, Plastica because they wanted to remind people of all of the plastic waste that goes into the oceans. And um, the fact is that it's becoming really, really a problem um, for a lot of species and uh yeah, I mean, obviously, we can't solve that overnight, but we should all be cognizant of it and all be trying to um, force at least companies, since our government isn't really great at it at the moment, um, try and vote with our dollars a little bit and also encourage other um, measures, uh, donate to uh, nonprofits that are doing work around that and, um, you know, possibly. I don't know. Um, I just feel like it's good to try and do something about the oceans because they are in such trouble. Um, and I was just talking to someone uh, earlier today and I saw that you can now get a license plate with sharks on it um, from Massachusetts. And I said, I want I want sharks on my license plate. And uh, I said, you know, it's really crazy. Sharks have survived for millions and millions and millions of years. And now we're doing our level best to try and uh, make them extinct. And it's very frustrating um, because they are such amazing creatures. Um, but, you know... Let's move on and talk about a not so amazing creature. Um, but <laughs> this is a little bit of a slightly gross thing, but it's also really fascinating. So, um, you know, just just keep in mind, this isn't the nicest of um, animals. It is actually a parasite. Um, it's not an especially creepy parasite. It's just a little bit weird. Um, so it shouldn't be that much squeamish. There not, shouldn't be that much squeamishness involved, but I do always like to warn that if I'm going to talk about something slightly squeamish, um, so I will be talking about a parasite, but it is a fish parasite. Um, and it's not a very, uh, it doesn't do the fish a lot of damage. So um, this parasite is known as Hanagaya salminicola. And so, like it said, it infests fish and what is really amazing about it is that it is the first known animal, quote unquote, to not breathe. 
it doesn't process oxygen at all, as far as we can tell, because it's also the first animal to be found that doesn't have mitochondrial DNA. And as I said, animal is kind of a stretch of a word uh, for these tiny parasitic blobs, uh, but they are definitely from the kingdom Animalia. And so they infest the dense muscle tissue of fish and undersea worms. And so they don't really have any access to or need for oxygen, apparently. Especially since, you know, they get the majority of their nutrients they need from their hosts. However, every other multicellular creature on Earth that has had DNA sequencing analysis shows at least some genes for respiration. But a microscopic and genomic analysis shows that the creature has zero mitochondrial genome and thus no ability to perform respiration. The parasite is a member of the my my show excuse me mycozoa class a group of simple microscopic swimming parasites that are distantly related to jellyfish. They have lost their tissue, their nerve cells, their muscles, everything. <coughs> Excuse me. Study co-author Dorothy Hutchin, an evolutionary biologist at Tel Aviv University in Israel, told Live Science. And now we find that they have lost their ability to breathe. But this actually is a benefit to the organism which thrives by reproducing as quickly and often as possible. Having such a tiny genome means that it is easier to split and reproduce. This particular parasite is not a huge threat to fish, but others in the family have wiped out entire fishery stocks, notes Hutchin, which makes them a threat to both fish and commercial fisheries. Um... Now, I don't want to be graphic at all, but uh, I did want to note that fish infected with H. salmonicola are said to have quote-unquote tapioca disease, um, as they show having white oozing bubbles of these um, uh, parasites. Now, only the spores have any complexity. They actually look like bluish sperm cells with two tails and a body that resembles an alien gray uh, with two large dark spots. Now, these are actually not eyes, but rather stinging cells, a legacy from its jellyfish-like past. Now, they don't contain any venom, but can help with hatching from help with latching onto a host when needed. Animals are always thought to be multicellular organisms with lots of genes that evolved to be more and more complex. Hutchinson said, here we see an organism that goes completely the opposite way. They have evolved to be almost unicellular. Now, they're not sure yet just how the organism is able to gain ATP from, for energy to live. Other similar organisms have proteins that import it from the host, but more study will be needed to confirm if this is exactly what's going on there. And so, again, we're presented with a reminder that nature is weird, sometimes wonderful, sometimes kind of horrifying, um, but definitely weird. 
And a lot of that weirdness is concentrated under the ocean. Now, speaking of jellyfish, a researcher in Mexico has developed a way to potentially use jellyfish collagen to aid in human skin regeneration. So that's the eventual hope. Dr. Nayeli Rodriguez Fuentes and her colleagues hope to use the collagen as scaffolding for the human skin cells to regrow. And so it would be applied directly to wounds. These materials are placed on the injury directly in the cavity where the lesion is located. So it helps the patient not to lose blood and heal more rapidly. Dr. Rodriguez Fuentes noted, they use jellyfish because the organism has structural characteristics similar to human skin, and so may well prove to be quite useful in skin regeneration. In addition, the animal from which the collagen is extracted is actually available along the Yucatan uh, coast. And so this means that if fully successful, it could be used not only for injuries, but also as an alternative treatment for skin diseases such as diabetic ulcers. The membrane works as a sort of adhesive bandage and would allow the patient's skin cells to populate the membrane and aid in healing. Now, of course, as with much research like this, the project is still in vitro or in the lab, but if it reaches human trials and is successful, it could be a boon to medicine, especially in the local area. Many people are currently treated with skin grafts, either from areas on the patient's body that are healthy or from donor skin sourced from cadavers. And, you know, that's not always readily available. So anything that helps us be able to develop other ways of helping people recover is really, really helpful. Okay, so finally tonight, there is, this is a weird story. Um, it's not a new finding, but it is interesting to say the least. It turns out that there are two kinds of people. Now, of course, there's two kinds of people in lots of ways, um, but there are two kinds of people in that there are those who can voluntarily contract their tensor tympani in the middle ear and those who can't. Those who can, myself included, are able to produce a low rumbling sound for a second as the muscle is tensed. The muscle has been known to science since at least 1842, but most of us never know that there are people who either can or can't do it based on which side we're on. I, for instance, assumed everyone could do that. Of course, it's making the rounds now because of a tweet. <laughs> this particular one was by the Italian engineer Massimo, who apparently has quite a uh, Twitter following. And so the muscle is actually pretty important. There are three major bones in the ear, the malleus, incus, and stipes. The malleus is closest to the eardrum and transmits vibrations to the incus. The tensor tympani is connected to the malleus. When it contracts, it pulls the malleus away from the eardrum, which then tenses the eardrum membrane, aka the tympanic membrane, uh, limiting its ability to vibrate and thus dampening the vibrations transmitted through the inner ear. It does this reflexively in response to loud noises and is thought to play a role in protecting the inner ear from damage. But it can also dampen low-frequency sounds, making it easier to hear high-frequency sounds, 
And it also contracts slightly in response to self-generated sounds like chewing, speaking, yawning, and the like. It probably keeps us sane (laughs) and not deafened by the sounds of our own body. Now, those who can voluntarily flex it are hearing the sound of the muscle itself and basically creating a kind of hands over the ears effect without, of course, the use of your hands. Now, if you're not able to do it on your own, it's suggested that when you, and I tried this and it does work, if you just yawn really loudly, you'll get the same effect. Um, It's sort of a rushing, rumbly sound, uh, and that is the muscles contracting. And also, apparently, there are people who can also equalize the pressure between the atmosphere and their inner ear on command. That's one I wish I had. (laughs) Um, So we have a few more minutes uh, before we need to wrap up and... um, I suppose I should do another COVID-19 update. Um, I'm definitely uh, not concerned about it at the moment. Um, Really, I'm much more concerned about allergies. Um, I have terrible allergies. (laughs) Um, And those are all the time and uh, driving me crazy. Um, But right now, I'm not worried because New England is definitely not... Um, had many cases at all. Um, We are, you know, everyone in the Valley, I think, is still nonetheless gearing up. Um, I know all the local colleges are doing a whole bunch of things. Um, Some of them are even already starting to cancel people's ability to, or cancel um, gatherings. So for instance, um, you know, not having... um, spectators at sports events and things like that. Um, And I think that, you know, while it may seem a little premature, um, as much as it's an inconvenience, I think it's better to inconvenience people than to, you know, not inconvenience inconvenience them and then have them get sick. (laughs) So um, I think it's very important, though, again, to kind of balance not panicking with also being slightly proactive, Um, you know, gather some things that are important, make sure that you're staying away from people who are sick, make sure um, if you're sick, you stay at home, if at all possible. We talked about that last week about how um, the uh, lack of paid sick leave in this country is Uh, both just a terrible thing from a humanitarian standpoint, but also a terrible thing from a business standpoint. But um, again, this isn't an economics economics, uh, show, so we won't go into detail on that. But um, I continue to not be terribly worried. I will start to worry when there are cases in Massachusetts, especially if there become cases where people have contracted it in community in Massachusetts. That's when we'll really need to start to be concerned. But for now, I would just say um, stick to the normal hygiene um, regimens and make sure that you are, you know, keeping yourself uh, vigilant about sort of flu-like symptoms. And so that's really all we can do for now. and of course, there are people who are still going to get regular flu uh, in the next couple of months. So, you know, you have to balance out what you can do. Um, and I still think the most important thing to do is not to panic. 
um, not to run out and clear the shelves of the local Costco or anything like that. Um, so yeah, it may develop further, but for the moment, I think that that's the best advice. All right, that is all the time I have for tonight. So uh, do stay tuned uh, and I will be back next week. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.